Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the new Geek Town Behind the Scenes interview podcast. I'm Dave Elliott, your host, and this episode I'm chatting with Andrew Barnabas and Paul Arnold, otherwise known as the composers Bob and Barn. If you're a fan of the medieval video game series, uh, you're probably quite aware of Bob and Barn. They are the people that have been scoring medieval ever since it first came out 20-something years ago. They've recently been re mixing and reworking the soundtrack for the new PS4 re-release of it. They have also worked on games such as Neverwinter Nights, Primeval, a whole bunch of other games. They've worked across TV as well. Most notably and most recently, they've been working on the brilliant E4 sitcom Dead Pixels, which if you've been listening to the main Geek Town Radio podcast, you know I mentioned that uh, I was actually on set on Dead Pixels quite recently chatting with the cast. So Bob and Barn together have over 40 years professional experience as composers they've been working together for over 15 they've got a huge amount of technical skills working with video games obviously and uh, also with tv and film i should also mention at this point i actually personally know bob aka paul because we actually went to the same school he was a few years older than me he was actually uh, my trumpet tutor at high school as well so uh, i know paul quite well i'd never spoken to barn before so it was nice to get them both both in and uh, be able to chat through some of their work. If you're interested in uh, music in video games, or particularly if you're a fan of medieval, it's really fascinating to hear them talk about reapproaching a project that has been part of their lives really for over 20 years and uh, going back into that music. We also touch on their work on Dead Pixels and how they got involved with that, which of course is an interesting project because it is a mixture of uh, TV and video game stuff as well. Really, really lovely to be able to sit down and talk to them and catch up, particularly with uh, Paul, aka Bob, after such a long time. I should also mention that uh, poor old Bob had quite a sore throat. He was just getting over a cold when we recorded this. So you can find his voice kind of going a little bit all over the place in some places. It's not the recording, it was his actual voice that was causing the problem there. Hopefully he's all better now because this was done a few weeks ago. As ever, if you want uh, more information on TV and video games and all that good stuff, you can go over to geektown.co.uk we also have the weekly geek town radio podcast which goes out every tuesday you can catch that and we have various other interviews which we are putting out on the new behind the scenes podcast which goes out on the same feed you can catch that as well i recently interviewed physics girl the youtuber who is fantastic to talk to so go and check out that as well here's the interview with bob and barn 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's lovely to be chatting with both of you, despite one of you sounding, as you say, like Bat Lynch. Uh, yeah, I do apologise <laughs> for that. <laughs> it's all right, no worries. Um, so, yeah, and uh, yes, as I say, it's been about 30 years since I mean, Paul probably spoke. Uh, but the yeah. uh, first time I've, I've spoken with you, Andrew, so are we using normal names or are we using Bob and Barn? What are we using here? You might be the only well, we person. We generally got Bob and Barn. Like, yeah, you I mean, it's, it's, it's a simplified thing but you might be the only person who knows me as paul genuinely <laughs> okay yeah because because obviously you know i know you from school that we you know you yes. were you were my trumpet tutor at school in so. fact yes yes indeed that happened for a while yes that as well um so yeah and barn you're responsible for the nickname i believe that's very true yes it is indeed mate yes so uh but yes i i did know you in a former life as paul since those days 30 years ago you've got on to becoming composers and the main thing you've been working on recently i guess is uh medieval which is a game you have a very long connection with there was that in-house at sony you started that but way way back in 98 i think it was yeah it was indeed yeah was that where the two of you met originally as well yes it was was, yeah. It was. So what was the decision to leave Sony? And I know there was a lot of changes around that time at Sony. Was it sort of them downsizing and or was it an active decision to go and form your own thing? Do you want to take this bubble slide? Well, I'll try. <laughs> yes, actually, Barn and I have been discussing for some time in the lead up to that, that we might set up our own sort of freelance business. And we'd been setting aside money from bonuses and stuff that we could save from our salaries and whatever to, to put together our own little home studio. And I mean, back then it had to be hardware based and now we're pretty much all inside a very powerful PC box. Yeah. But, but back then, you know, we had to buy mixing desks and, you know, expensive monitors and the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah. Um, so we, we got something set up and um, around 2001, we're actually offered quite a decent amount of freelance work from some someone that we'd already worked with. And I guess that was the final shove that we needed to, to go and work freelance. It was really scary as hell because, you know, we'd been so used to a good life under the Sony wing, working in internally on internal projects and obviously being salaried and, you know, there was a good pension and private health care and all that. And then suddenly you know oh you're on your own yeah. so it was it was a very brave decision but it was kind of almost made for us by the fact that um we were offered all this work so we left and we did it and one way or another we've kind of made ends meet over the years but it's been definitely a roller coaster i would say <laughs> yeah i know that feeling quite well <laughs> yeah, yes 
doing this as well. So medieval being one of those things that that has sort of hung on since those early days at Sony, and then you kind of ended up doing medieval two and medieval resurrection, and then yeah. sort of fifteen years since you last touched it for resurrection, and sort of twenty two years after the original, they get back in touch and say, "Do you want to come back and do some more on it? Because we're re releasing it on the PS4." How was it coming back to that, and what were those sort of initial conversations like? Well, I think initially it was actually more of a case we weren't entirely sure what was going to happen because right. it's I mean this is this is one of those things where you know like at the time Medieval 1 was just one of three projects we were doing that year yeah. we were doing another yeah. game called Beast Wars another game called Frogger so it's just like you know just one of a you know everything you would just, you know, turn your hands to mm. I mean we knew musically it was a style of stuff which we'd never done before and it was actually really quite rewarding but at the time you can't look back on it now you can look back on it and go wow that's that's the one that's the one you'll be put on your you know pun intended gravestone but uh <laughs> yes that definitely was the project which uh seemed to uh seemed to carry on more than anything else so yes we did medieval one while in in, in house medieval two was also done in house right uh, and in fact at that point we'd also uh because medieval one was the first time we'd been asked to write anything in an orchestral style most of the music before before that had been more i'd say more traditional gaming but more sort of more riff based more uh more that kind of style of composition this was this uh the director so the designer of the game chris soul had a very clear vision of how I wanted the game to look and how I wanted it to sound and because the game was a uh, well visually it definitely took a, a very very strong influence from uh, the uh, Nightmare Before Christmas the Tim Burton uh, Henry Selick film from mm. 19, mm. 1990 I think it was and uh, also there was a game early in the in the 80s a Konami arcade game called Ghosts and Goblins and Girls and Ghosts yes. this was again all in that sort of area we loved writing we loved that kind of, that kind of music and it was uh, because Danny Elfman had such a strong uh, influence on the way that he made those films sound. That was something which we were given as a clear reference for this, which we just love to try to analyse. And I think from our perspective, fortunately, both having a, a musical background and education, we were a little bit, uh, we were quite adept at trying to pull apart how, what made a Danny Elfman score sound like a Danny Elfman score. And it was something we enjoyed doing a lot. So when they brought it back, and we also knew that from that particular studio's franchise, uh, so that studio's output, it was clearly the strongest game that they had made in terms of uh, how the, the fans had received it. So once once we came back to uh, Medieval Resurrection in 2004, which was released in 2005, having already done the, the, oh, already done the work on Chris Soul's sequel to Medieval, a game called Primal, we were, fortunately at that point, we were more, uh, we, we, had our, we had our first experience from Waterfield for an actual real orchestra. And therefore it was actually quite an easy sell for that point to have Sony uh, uh, give us a contract to, uh, to do the same thing for Primal for Medieval, which is great because we'd always wanted a live orchestra for Medieval 1 and Medieval 2, but at those days, budgets and everything else, <laughs> yeah. they weren't really there. People weren't really doing live orchestral scoring. And then since 2005, all the way up to about I think it's probably the beginning of 2018, but uh, we were getting more messages than anything else, probably uh, to a factor of 10 from fans saying, when are you doing a new medieval? When's a new medieval? In fact, they were kind of, many of them saying to us, make a new medieval, as if it was yeah. like our, as our choice, which clearly it wasn't. And, and in fact, at one point, we had to get, uh, we had to get one of the, uh, the studio designer, sorry, the, uh, the communications director, Wild well, Green, to actually write a paragraph of text so we could send it to the fans and go, guys, we'd love to do it, but there seems to be no appetite in the, in Sony's London, yeah. uh, the yeah. kind of marketing department to do this. So please stop asking because 
you know, we'd love to do it, but it's not down to us and it's been happening. So, oh, so we, you know, we we thought it might come and go. In fact, Sony themselves, uh, Sony Cambridge themselves, did, did some preliminary work on trying to push a medieval three many, many times. But just always said no. And I think it was around the end of 2017 that and people even made fake trailers for the game, which I always thought was a strange <laughs> thing to do. And we would get sent them and say, oh, is this yours? Is this yours? And I'm like, no, sorry, it's nothing to do with us. And so we got sent another fake trailer. So we thought at the end of 2017, it didn't have any new footage. It was simply like new medieval coming. Blah, blah, blah. And again, we assumed it was a fake trailer. <laughs> and it wasn't until a week, week later that uh, I think it was the same fan uh, had written to us and said, actually, I think it's genuine. And sent us a link to a video uh, of a an internal Sony conference. We had some three big, big uh, three senior guys at Sony. Sean Layden, at the time, the global chairman, being one of them, sat down and said, I've got a surprise for you all. Opened up his, uh, unbuttoned his shirt and underneath it was a T-shirt which had Dan Fortescue, the main character from Medieval. It was like, oh, <laughs> that might be real now. That's something which we can give him out. And, and then for them, for weeks after, it was almost like an avalanche of messages we had from, from fans saying, are you doing it? Are you doing it? And the truth is, we hadn't heard anything from Sony. Right. So we assumed at that point that because the score for Medieval Rex- Resurrection was recorded live, they were simply going to take those recordings and use them in the new game. Yeah. And it wasn't until uh, a few months later, I think it was actually February of last year, that we did actually get contacted by Sony America saying, actually, we'd like you like you guys to get involved. Initially, they asked us to actually sort of do synthesized updates of the tracks from Medieval 1 with the new technology now, which means that this, the orchestral recreations would be much more realistic. Mm. And I was like, no, why would we do that? You've already recorded them live. Why would we go back and do them all in synths again? Yeah. And at that point, I don't even sure, I'm not actually sure they were actually really aware of how much well, what had happened on Medieval Resurrection. They only, I think they'd only looked at Medieval 1 and Medieval 2. So we sort of came, came up with a counter-proposal and saying, actually, we'd like to get involved if we can actually do some live recordings and in many ways take back, uh, record tracks which you've written in, back in 1997, 1998, and, and then record them live, hearing them as we'd always wanted to hear them but were never able to. And then the combination of that and tracks from Medieval Resurrection, which they were going to do, use and the levels in the new, in the new game. So at that point, they actually came back to us and blessed them. They all said, yes, that's a really good idea. And then we had this, we had a really, really busy year last year. I was just about to say to them, look, we can't start this until the end, I think, end of June. We were working on some other stuff. And then we had that wonderful moment of both both Bob and I sitting here and going, right, let's write a medieval demo track to prove to us. <laughs> and we sat down and we sort of looked at it and it was like, oh, okay, we set up our template, which we now do for the casual sounds and started writing things. And initially we took the graveyard track, the introduction from the graveyard track as a sort of an introduction to tune for this started right sort of the, the first 30 seconds of that and then we wrote a new tune in the medieval style after that now that was quite that in itself was like literally re, like riding a bike again it was something we hadn't we hadn't written in that style for many years but after a while we wrote, both realized that it was obviously a formula which we knew very very well and we both sort of sat there and go we were firing ideas off like on all cylinders it was like, oh, how about that? How about this? How about that? How about this? And in fact, in theory, well, which is what hopefully we are, having learned, one would hope, quite a lot in the 20 years since we did a medieval <laughs> track, uh, to in theory improve and uh, take the orchestral knowledge and everything we've learned from the last 20 years and apply that to a medieval track. And so that was brilliant fun. That was really was a case of uh, dusting off the cobwebs and getting back to the medieval thing. And so, the, but the feedback we got from Sony was quite, was, was sort of like, it made sense, but at the time we were quite surprised by it. It was like, well, clearly we've got the right guys 
because it's <laughs> how it's just like a medieval track. But the feedback was actually because they're doing a remaster slash remake of the first game, we need to have more of a uh, more relevant. Basically, we need to be make much more of a uh, relevance, uh, much more. Uh, I can't think of the word now, uh, to the first game. It needs to be sound a lot more like the first game. Right. So at that point, then, it was like, let's let or let's kind of like pull it backwards and just try and work out, let's take some of the original tracks from the first game, what would we do to improve them, and all of those other things. And also, at the same time, I was very keen. I knew, I knew, I knew as a sort of a fan of games myself, that I wouldn't really be that keen on just hearing an entire score just redone again hmm. and what's hear new material yeah so at that yeah. point we sat there and said okay what are the what are the weaker tracks which we weren't thinking as were strong because we did, we did the same thing in medieval resurrection we went back to the first game and said which ones were stronger which ones were weaker can we let's rewrite the weaker ones and hopefully make them stronger and managed to do the same thing here so we took a few managed to get eke in a few new tracks which i knew people would want to hear and obviously from our perspective we wanted to write them as well. Yes. But at the same time, it was like, well, okay, well, not only are we going to have a chance to record this live, but we're now going to have a chance to make the score interactive, which was never something which we were able to do on Medieval 1 or Medieval 2, simply because the technology didn't exist. Yeah. Middleware didn't exist. The ability to to stream different bits of music in and out and fade bits in and out and having having those gluing sections so that well, you could sort of transform one section to another section and it all. And so basically have the, have the track evolve because on the original game, Due to limitations and everything else, the tracks were about two and a half, two two and a half minutes long. We, we knew we couldn't do a, a seamless looping bit, so therefore we wrote a track which started very quietly, kind of came to the loudest bit in the middle of the track, and then ended very quietly. So then, when you had the looping point, hopefully it would happen over the, the least prominent part of the track. Right. But the tracks themselves were about two and a half minutes long, and if the game, if a level took say roughly ten, say five or ten minutes to complete. On the early ones, and obviously late, later ones took it much longer. You'd be hearing the same track multiple times, yeah. Which we were never keen on. In fact, as games composers, that's one thing I've always been the bane of my life has been repetition. Mm. You want to avoid that because music itself will always evolve. And we're having now worked in the film and TV a little bit. We learned that you know it's a case of music does really evolve on depending on the pictures and everything else. And therefore, how can we apply that same mentality to music from medieval, but at the same time keeping the essence of what those original tracks were? Were, so the fans of the first game will go, yes, that sounds like the graveyard track. That sounds like Hilton Mausoleum. That sounds like Cemetery Hill. But taking them and then evolving them in such a way which would allow us to do that. Right, yeah. I mean, the, the interactive stuff's kind of interesting because that is probably your biggest difference between doing something which is purely linear and something which is a gaming format in, in that as well as sort of looping things, you are now having to create these kind of multi-layered things that, that it almost not composing on the fly but you you are mixing bits together live within the game i guess is is the way it sort of works so you're bringing bits in and out and it's not like you're you're not writing it particularly in that way it sort of get mixed as the gamer goes through a particular area i'm i correct in thinking that with the interactive sort of music stuff yes we were quite fortunate actually with medieval excuse me god it sounded awful um we were quite fortunate with medieval in that the music had quite a strong structure right from day one and yeah. give, given that we wanted to gives a, a really strong nod to the original score it was very simple for us to to write in that sense we you know we didn't need to to try and think in t- in too many sort of three-dimensional ways yeah. um the guys at sony in in um, san diego they were wonderful actually and we were led very much by a lot of 
their input on, first of all, how we should write the music, but then afterwards, more importantly, how we should produce and record the music. And so um, what we ended up doing when we went out to Prague to record with the Philharmonic again was we had a separate strings, brass and woodwind session Mm. so that there was no bleed from any of those sessions across the board so so that you could take the woodwinds out, take the brass out. And it would just give each one of those sections just a little bit more versatility. And then what we also did was we we produced um, demos of of all these tracks in synthesizers, you know, with with sample based orchestral samples. Mm. Then we did a kind of a cutback version, like a rollback version, an even more simplified version of what was the original tune. And again, it just gave each of the tracks a bit longer shelf life and it gave them more scope when they were implementing the music to give it different flavors and colors to have a more involved sound or something much simpler and um, across the board I mean if, if you think about interactive music you can you can tie it in very closely to gameplay and that was initially what we kind of thought about you know what what if we had an extra line that came in we, we were thinking sort of short detached notes on strings that would just add a sense of urgency mm. and and give give each of the tracks like a, a stronger impetus. And what if we tied that in with the number of bad guys that were around you? <laughs> but we we pretty much ruled that out fairly quickly. In fact, so it's only kind of said that that's going to drive people insane. It could be coming in and out all the time. Yeah. So uh, in the end, we decided to keep the idea, but just not use it in that way. So every track, even tracks that you've heard on Medieval Resurrection, have got this new element in there. So it meant that everything was new to some degree or another. And it gave them this sort of extra musical elements that that they could bring in and out whenever they wanted. And then instead of, you know, going the full hog interactively and, and trying to attach a piece of music that completely gave a sense of place and flavor to to a a part of a level it was really just a case of dissecting the music into sections and allowing those sections to appear as you progress through the level so it's a a sort of a simpler approach but it it meant that hopefully the music didn't sound anywhere near as repetitive as it did on the original game yeah that makes sense when it came to approaching this as you said it's sort of 22 years since the original 15 years since resurrection I'm, i'm guessing you didn't have access to any of the original stuff given that that was done in uh, Sony no. as well. So, yeah. I, and, and who keeps things on backup discs that is actually going to work for 20, for 20 years? years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, was it was it a case of just going to dig through recordings to try and remember how you know what exactly how it worked? I mean, I know obviously you wrote it, but that's a long time to kind of get your head back well, into it. You know what? That's a curious thing because you you do remember things. It's, it's surprising, <laughs> but but mostly we were doing. We had the original recordings, of course. Yeah. So we're sitting there listening to them and just doing what we call takedowns, just working it out by ear and then re reorchestrating and putting them down. So, I mean, back in the day when we were doing that stuff with a JV-1080 and a sampler, you know, we hadn't got a great orchestra in front of us. We hadn't got violins one, violin two, yeah. violas, cellos and double bass. We just had a string patch. So <laughs> we, we would not have written it correctly and accurately for an orchestra back then. So even if we had access to the MIDI and the original tracks, we would have still had to do a huge 
huge amount of interpretation anyway. So what may seem like a massive disadvantage wasn't really that much of a disadvantage because it just forced us into orchestrating it properly this time. And so actually we were doing takedowns, but the, there were a couple of bits where, I mean, I, I did the intro sequence and, and I remember Barn said to me, that flute part's not quite right there. You know, and he just remembered what he'd done on the original thing. So, so then, so I'll send it over to him, and he just fixed it. So it's kind well, of interesting how much you do remember. Yeah, that's crazy. In in terms of working together, I mean, you know, obviously, if uh, composing sometimes seems like it's a very solitary job, and then yeah. you got the pair of you working together. How does that process work with you both working on the same things? Well, actually, we don't. I mean, we do. Um, I think that we worked together for. A number of years because only we only had one studio, but then I think it was around 2007 when things started getting too busy. Because the problem is, is anyone's studio and two of you, only one of you can drive, yeah, and therefore the amount of content you can produce on weekly, monthly, yearly basis is actually quite limited. Unless you end up working in shifts, you'll end up actually just uh, the amount of music will be will be quite limited. And as technology grew, the amount of money that we saved up to uh, to build up the first studio, I think it was about thirty thousand pounds when we set up initially in 2001. It was significantly cheaper to then uh, move to a computer-based system right. uh, in 2007. So actually, we end up pretty much having we now pretty much have a duplicate system. Mm. So we can send key-based sessions and everything else between us, and pretty much load them up and go. I'll work on that. You work on that. So actually, in many cases, we actually work. We now work predominantly apart. Well, what we'll do is we'll we'll sort of work together initially, depending on the kind of body you're working on, to kind of kind of come up with our color palette. I suppose is the way to describe yeah. it on our themes, instrumentation, everything else, and then we will go off and do our own things. As you say, and come, we'll come back and we'll, we'll come review and compare notes. But for the most part, well, I think we worked on this pretty much independently. But that, in many ways, that actually helped because Bob worked on tracks which I'd originally written, and I worked on tracks he'd originally written. So we actually <laughs> both had a different perspective on this. Sometimes we forgot bits, but actually sometimes we went, oh, I can change that now, I can chew that. There were points where you were sitting there going, oh, I would never have done that. <laughs> <laughs> 20 years later but I, and so as you said as you, as you talked earlier there was a string patch and you end up writing strings in a very sort of chordally based way just yeah. on a couple of you know using both hands on the piano whereas a well, for an awful orchestra they would write violin one violin two viola cello and bass separate a separate line so you get this yeah. and you get these wonderful uh, harmonies and counterpoint which come as a result of doing that so having learned all that we can take one of the tracks and go well I'm actually going to rip out the strings there and redo them again because as long as the lead line stays the same and the chords underneath are effectively the same, the way you orchestrate them can be very, very different. And in theory, it sounds much more rich, much more fuller as a result. So from that perspective, it made things a lot easier. I mean, but we did, as a result of that, because of a two of us, we actually come up with different ideas. Bob mentioned the whole point of, uh, of his, uh, what, we call, what, what we call the spiccato line. The reason this kind of came up initially is because, because at the time, Medieval me uh, wrote, the, wrote the tracks, there were, as we, as, as we discussed, no interactivity. Yeah. There was no, the music did not reflect what was happening on screen. In fact, the closest we could actually get was when you came to a boss track, so when it came to, you know, if, uh, you know, yeah. down would fight the boss, we could switch to a boss version of the track. But after on that, the music was 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 pretty much it was pretty much as I lo- as I love to describe it, all icing on a visual oh. cake. <laughs> you go around, you walk around a level, and there's a piece of music which helps you sort of put you in that place. Yeah. But whether you're walking around enjoying the scenery or whether you're getting your ass completely kicked, the music wouldn't change. Right, so yeah. uh, so as so as a result, where do you pitch the music? And actually, what you know, we pretty much pitch the music somewhere in the middle. 
because most of the game you're not getting hordes of enemies at the most of it's more exploration more puzzle solving yeah. and therefore as a result the music was generally largely slow which is the one of the things we actually like writing it's much, it's much, I much prefer writing slower music which also meant that because the music was slow and it didn't reflect what was happening on screen Bob's wonderful idea of adding this rhythmic layer meant that if the track was going bub 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 and then you can add this layer underneath going bub, 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 bub. Right. So it's double the tempo, but the track itself wasn't, you didn't change the rhythm of the track, the tempo of the track itself. Yeah. So we only did, we added, we added the spiccato string layer. We added also some percussion instruments to it as well. So me playing a different random sort of tambourine and tabla and uh, congo sort of slight for uh, ethnic instruments. And sometimes you'd even have a triangle over that. So basically you had, you had two or three additional elements per track, which could come in and out depending on what was happening on screen. As Bob also said, we actually rather than having this come in and out when the when the, the player was surrounded by a lot of enemies or his health was low and everything else, it was actually uh Monty, Monty Mother uh, visor in, in San Diego said actually it was a much better way of doing it was to have the music progress as the level as you progress the level so there were certain points where you, if you open a gate to get to the next level not only were you going to be suddenly suddenly swamped by a load of bad guys then you would start to hear different parts of the music mm. so as the track progressed you've, you've got these you know, there's this music for this two and a half minute track and you can start to introduce bits from the first little minute and then the, that, as this progressed, you start hearing bits from the second second part of the track and then towards the end, you start hearing bits from the third. So we're sort of like, almost like dividing tracks into sort of three different elements of which you would hear depending on where you are through the level. Mm. That gave you a progression in terms of the music feeling like it did actually progress as you went through it. Now, having, having these rhythmic layers coming in and out meant that you could have some more variety in terms of the of the in, you know the impetus of the music. And because we'd we'd done this uh, these MIDI cutdowns, and in fact not only have we done MIDI cutdowns of samples of just individual elements, we actually added some new ones as well. In some cases we had we had one of the uh, had one of the uh, players come in and do little solos, like a clarinet or a flute right. solo over it. Just just to add a little bit more variety. In fact, someone commented actually on there when we when the, on the soundtrack when they said, "Oh, I'd like to have heard the uh, the full version of the interactive tune on the soundtrack." Well, I said, "Reality is, if you add if you put them all back to back, it's more like ten minutes of music." Right. So it would have made the soundtrack four or five times longer. So, so actually, what we tried to do was just to have elements of it so you could hear it on the soundtrack as as the level progressed. So all of these things added to making the level sound a little bit more. You know, basically a lot fuller, a lot more, a lot more interesting things going on. But what we also discovered while doing this was because the, because the music for the first game was kind of known reasonably well, there seems to be a certain reverence for it. In fact, if you pull everything away from it, you can actually, it's amazing how much you can, how much you can just have maybe one or two elements, maybe just a lead line and maybe a little accompaniment and still recognize it as a track from the original game. Yeah. And that actually went, oh, that's, that's quite interesting because I've also noticed there's a trend in games music of late, which is more, again, more, also more, more towards how film music works these days, where it's becoming less, some of it's becoming less thematic and more textural, whereas the music can be a lot simpler in order to sort of affect what's happening on screen, which allows it to become bigger and quiet, you know, larger and quieter, bigger, depending on where you, what's happening on the film. So therefore, we could apply some of this contemporary way of, of composing for films in the medieval way, where you could bring it down to very, very, very little, maybe even just, a, yeah, and some kinds, it's just, just down to the rhythm. <laughs> And just therefore, and therefore, you could, as it progressed, you could bring things out. So there's a huge amount of scope from going from very little to huge amounts of music, with all within the same level, with all on the same track. 
Wow. I mean, it's an incredible piece of work. I mean, just working on a on a game like this. And it, it is one of the loveliest soundtracks for uh, a, a video game. And yeah, you can hear the you can hear the Danny Elfman influence in it as well, oh, which is, yeah. is great. Did you ever think you were gonna get to a point where you'd actually got people on YouTube and online doing cover versions of your songs? Oh, no, you I mean that that is an amazing tribute that, that people make to you. And no, I mean we had no idea that back in 1998, I mean, what, we were both in our 20s, you know, not really having a clue that, that this thing was going to snowball on to become probably the, the project that we're still most well known for after yeah. all these years. And, you know, work, we've worked in TV, we've done film work, we, you know, and, and this is the thing that comes back. We get fan mail for it. Yeah, as you say, people doing cover versions of tracks. It's it really is you know it's it's a wonderful thing and um, we've always enjoyed the fact that it, it seems to inspire people into not just listening to music but engaging with music and and getting into it themselves and there's no shortage of people who've written to us and and said you know thank you so much for that score it it got me into music and I'm producing music now <laughs> and. Uh, you know, it's 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 been brilliant. I can't deny. Yeah, as I say, it's a, it's a great piece of music. And you, you mentioned there that you've worked on TV and films as well. One of the TV shows you worked on was Dead Pixels, oh, yeah. which uh, I was actually on the set of a few weeks ago uh, where they were oh, really? they were filming. I I was down there to talk to the cast and stuff uh, for the because they're shooting the second season at the moment. Amazing. I, I think I was actually down there one day before you you guys went over for, for yeah. Them, so. Oh, that's. Weird. Weird. Yeah, it's very weird. So I missed you by a day. But that must have been a fabulous thing to get involved with because it is a mixture of sort of TV and video game stuff because you're doing stuff for the comedy show itself. Plus, you've got the Kingdom Scrolls game, which is the thing that they play in it. So how do you approach something like that when you've got those two sort of fairly distinct elements, I guess, in there? Dead Pixels, again, talking about the fact that how Medieval helped, I would argue that Medieval got us Dead Pixels. Yeah. Because if we look back many, many years... Once we started recording orchestras and started going to reasonable size studios for game stuff, this is probably the early noughties, there were TV and film composers there. And they popped their head around the door and they sort of look at us and go, this is for a game? Because at those point, those days, there were, there were, I think most of them were like thinking it was more like blip-blop music. And so there was a distinct level of surprise when we said this is for a game. And they were saying, guys, you should be doing film and TV stuff. This is, this is, you know, this is good. And But we, at that point, we were so blinkered into doing games because it was all-encompassing. You could work on a game for, in some cases, a couple of years. Yeah. And, and when we tried, when we, then we thought, well, why not? Let's have a go. Let's start trying to get into film and TV. And I'll be honest with you, when we first tried to do this, we completely failed, largely because we ascribed the same business model from games to film right. and TV. It turned out that actually it's surprisingly different. Yes. But then a few years later, we thought, we'll have another go. We'll have another go. And in fact, the real turning point was when Bob went to a, a networking event, stellar networking event. And uh, in fact, I think it was originally to pitch script ideas. And obviously we didn't have a script, but we just wanted to get our face in front of yeah. people. And yeah. uh, there was uh, one table which, uh, which didn't have anyone on it. I think it was the light entertainment table. So Bob went over there. I mean, the drama table, I think, was full. So the, the uh, light entertainment table was em empty. Bob went over there and got chatting to a, a lady called Sarah Edwards, who worked at, uh, I think it was at Talkback Thames at the yeah, time. Yeah, that's right. And uh, then uh, she said, well, if you, I think, I think the line was, if you're prepared to come and see me, I'm prepared to come and listen to you. <laughs> or her, yeah. 
and then never saw her again. <laughs> but what she did do was put it in touch with her sort of underling, a producer who worked with her, a guy called Andy Brereton. Now, Andy Brereton was a real turning point for us because he was a massive fan of games. And yeah. he knew our work from games. So he knew Medieval. He knew it very well. And so he was like, wow, guy, yeah, this is brilliant. And so we sort of stayed in touch with him. We actually brought him to meet us at the Sony because there was an original a discussion about whether there, there could be a gaming sort of TV crossover. But then it came, I think it was 2009, it's come out 10 years now, he was just he was just producing a, a, a new TV show called The King is Dead. And he said, actually, I'd like to get you guys into to, to pitch on writing the title of music for it. You guy, you got you are the, the curveball option because you don't have any credits in TV. We, I think we had one or two at the time, but we were basically we were, you know, no one knew us in TV. Mm. And but I'll give you first crack of the whip. If it doesn't work out, then we'll have to get in the more, you know, more usual suspects. Yeah. And uh, put us in touch with a guy called Matt Malo, who he was working with. And between the two of them, we went out, we had a chat with them, went through and organised it, and just basically got, got an idea of what kind of show they were after. Went and wrote an idea of a title tune. Unfortunately, we nailed it. In fact, <laughs> in fact, the I think Matt's first response to us is still one of our testimonials on our website because it was such a glowing uh, <laughs> review of our track. It was like you totally nailed this. And I was like. Phew. In fact, I think actually they told us later that they ended up redesigning, you know, designing the title sequence group visuals around the track that we'd done. Nice. So that was clearly such a strong, strong influence for us. And we've actually worked, I would actually, we can actually look back and say that majority of our work in TV has come as a result of the people that Andy has introduced us to over the years. Hmm. And in fact, so two or three years ago, uh, we had a call from Matt Malone, the guy working on King's Dead and say, I'm working on a, uh, a comedy blap, which is a sort of a couple of three minute shorts for Channel 4 yeah. called Avatars, which Avatars is what effectively became Dead Pictures. Yes. It was yeah. a sort of like a kind of a, a preliminary pre pilot, I suppose. Mm. Two, you know, a couple of two, uh, I think it was like three minute episodes, just given the idea of Kingdom Scrolls and, and Meg and a couple of other characters. Yeah. And it was brilliant. Mm. It was brilliant. And, uh, and that is effectively what Channel 4 then greenlit to become Dead Pixels. So, and of course, they thought we were a perfect match for this because at that point we've done a few TV shows and obviously we've got a reasonably wealthier uh, backlog of games. Yeah. But I think also what's helped this is because when they came to us with Avatar, they said, look, we've got very little money for this. But I said, well, actually, what will make, what will make your lives a lot easier here is because obviously there's music for the show and there's music for Kingdom Scrolls, who you described. Now, Kingdom Scrolls is your traditional MMO RPG, big, huge, massive world role-playing game in a set in a fantasy environment. And I said, well, you haven't got the budget to go and record new scores for this. But what we have in our library, we own the rights to music from Primal and bits of medieval, the new medieval resurrection to use outside of games. Right. And I said, because right. of that, how about you just have that? And it turns out it was a, you know, a fortuitous uh, thing to do because Primal is a big fantasy, fantasy course, RPG yeah. game. So it couldn't be more authentic that we've given them authentic fantasy RPG games music to use in their fantasy <laughs> RPG game. Yeah. In pixels and that was brilliant that that helped that that helped enormously because it sounded authentic it was a real orchestra a real choir something they would never be able to afford to do on the black yeah so when it came to the show they wanted to carry on doing this in fact they'd already They'd already had what they regard as the Tanadel theme, the main sort of protagonists from uh, Dead Pixels. They'd already picked a piece of music from our library to be the theme for that. Right. So what they were doing, they were picking, uh, cherry picking bits of our uh, of this uh, of this library music that we, that we owned, and they were just putting this in in and throughout the game of Kingdom Scrolls. And in fact, our job was actually quite easy at that point. We were simply trying to write gluing pieces of music, adding stuff which they didn't, which they hadn't done in the past. There were bits where they were walking around, uh, sort of like medieval 
medieval uh, looking villages and bits of walking around yeah. meadows. So we just basically gave them, um, we, we wrote underscore, proper uh, you know, gaming style underscore. In fact, we even developed it in the way that you would do a game where <laughs> you gave them different intensities of the same piece of music. You would sit there and have a very sort of minimal, almost like pad-like, just a few notes here and there to be the kind of lowest version. You had, And then you had, again, add a level of intensity as things got more involved. Another level of intensity, which had bits of percussion, bits more, you know, a little bit more, you know, a lot more action sounding. But again, the same process you do in a game where it's the same tempo, but you're adding things to make the track feel faster and feel more intense. Right. And so we did we did that for this. And, and then we wrote bits of music in and around the actual show itself when they're in the bracket commas, you know, in inverted commas, the real world. Yeah. And it turned out that that was our first, hurrah, proper bona fide hit. Um, <laughs> so yes, so we, uh, so we discovered on, a, a, I think it was June or July of this year, E4 said it was their biggest hit scripted comedy since In Between Us. Wow. So they had, uh, they had a, uh, yes, they had a uh, greenlit a season two. So as you say, we went to go and visit the sets, I think, uh, as you say, a day, a day after you went to visit Yes. It. And it was actually really nice, actually, having not met them, only met the actors once, two years <laughs> before, I think, I everyone set. They all remembered us. Oh, that's fabulous. Like, oh, oh, it was a nice touch. Yeah, they are, they are lovely. Spoke to a number of the actors. Um, they are absolutely lovely. And John Brown, of course, the creator of it, who we also spoke yeah. to, is, is a huge, huge gaming nerd as well, which yes, is great. He is, so he is, yeah. it's a really appropriate show for you guys to be involved with. Yeah, absolutely. It is perfect for us to be involved with. I'm told the new season is supposed to be out around spring next year. So, um, the, yeah. you know, I'm very much looking forward to that arriving. So a couple of last questions for you. And the first question is, what TV shows are you watching at the moment? Strangely, I've gotten really into the um, the American TV, Sherlock Holmes TV series, Elementary. Oh, yeah. It's great, With, that show. Yeah. yeah. It's it's so clever, and I really love the way Johnny Lee Miller plays Sherlock in it. I love the twist of of um, John Watson being Joan Watson, and you know, the, yeah. and the dynamic between them. I've really, really gotten quite obsessed with that, and I've watched one episode of of Peaky Blinders. It's yet to grab me, but everyone's telling me how unbelievably amazing it is. I'm going to persevere with it until I know that I'm going to get hooked. <laughs> yeah, Peaky Blinders is, is one of those, it's a little bit of a slow burn. It takes a while to get yeah. into, but uh, yeah. yeah. The, the other thing with Elementary is it's got an amazing theme tune. I, that's Sean, Cal- Sean yeah. Callery's uh, theme to that. He's brilliant. So. It is. It is. <laughs> it's, it, it's an absolutely inspired cast. I, I really, yeah. really love the writing. And I love the way, you know, that you'll, you'll have a scene where, where they'll go, well, you know, looks like this is a murder. And, and he'll say, it's obviously a suicide. And they go, well, I think your your definition of obvious and mine are completely <laughs> different. Yeah. And, and But then he explains it. And it's, yeah, that all makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's brilliant. It is really good. And I'm glad they got to kind of round it out properly when it came to an end. And, you know, it's it's good. I haven't got there yet. It finishes <laughs> well. You won't be, won't be upset okay. when it comes to I'll an end. Happy. You'll be good. happy. So. <laughs> okay, what am I watching at the moment? Well, I'm, I'm obviously a massive sci-fi fan, so currently I'm actually quite enjoying there. There's the cartoon series Star Wars Resistance, which I'm enjoying thoroughly. Right. There's what else am I watching? Silicon Valley, which I'm now re- rediscovering. I've missed the last couple of seasons of that. Yes. And just actually his Dark Materials. Ah, the, uh, yes. The yes. Philip Pullman adaptation. 
So yes, that's what's currently on my playlist. Yes. In fact, my other half and I, we also watch, which is quite, quite nice actually, uh, we discovered that, I'm not sure I'm not, actually, I'm not sure we're allowed to say it yet, but uh, Dead Pixels will be on in the States and this channel will be on in the States with the same channel, which I liked. I'm currently watching the uh, Arrow, Flash and um, Supergirl, the superhero shows. Do uh. of those as well. A completely conventional list of sci-fi fantasy and a bit of comedy. Yes, yes, it's a good selection. Have you made it to The Expanse yet? Oh, absolutely. I am in fact, I'm, I cannot wait to watch season four. Thank you, yes. Jeff. Thank you, Jeff Bezos, for yes, doing for, for for that. For rescuing that. Oh, the first three seasons. In fact, for me, the finest sci-fi. I mean, my favourite sci-fi of all time was Babylon Five, and this this is definitely the right. first time I've sat there and went, "This is a my you know my now my second favourite sci-fi." First two seasons were absolutely mind blowing. So yes, yeah. I cannot wait yeah. to watch season four, which I believe just launched a couple of days ago. It's fabulous, as as the previous seasons were, but it's it's just as fabulous. So uh, worth going to watch. Actually, Clinton Shaunter's theme. I think I really enjoyed that as well. Yeah. From yeah, uh, The Expanse. No, that was a really nice piece of music. It's great. It's great. And lastly, if you had the opportunity to work on any TV show, it can be something from the past, something present or something future, what show would it be? Oh, oh wow. Well, for me, definitely a sci-fi show. I would love to score a sci-fi show. Right, I think that all, right. cause just largely because it's my genre of choice. And we've scored a couple of sci-fi games yeah. over the years. Yeah. In fact, a game called Brinkle did a few years ago, which was quite fun to do. But yeah, I would love to score a sci-fi show i wouldn't have anything specific obviously a star trek show would be lovely yes but also score picard i'm quite looking forward to picard actually i think that will be an interesting one which comes out i'm quite enjoying discovery at the moment as well yes um so yeah so i think for me a sci-fi show but i wouldn't say anything more specific than that because who knows what will come out well i think i'd be even more generic than that and say i know we've barn and i have talked many times about what would be the dream job and you know it, it depends on whether your perspective is i want to make an absolute fortune from royalties or or whether <laughs> I want to enjoy the creative process. And I must admit, like doing a high-end drama would be amazing. You know, yeah. of almost of any description, but you know, a, a Game of Thrones kind of thing would totally fit us. I think in terms of how we rise and what we rise and what we've done in the past, I think we could do some justice to something like that. And I'm very sure we'd really enjoy that process. And and obviously, the worldwide superstardom would be great. Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's weird because I think overall, I think it, neither of us will have predicted that. But leaving out, something as games composers would have actually helped us getting into scoring film or TV. It was always a sort of a you know, a distant pipe dream mm. of ours, but we were so focused on doing games and they were becoming all-encompassing that we never predicted that actually, but in fact, initially some of our work in TV has come from people saying, I remember your score from, from X from 20 odd years ago, would you wow. like to score my TV show? You're literally <laughs> going, really? Wow, that's amazing. So yeah, that's been a, uh, a good, yeah, good journey yeah, for us yeah. I, I mean, I guess it's, it's this sort of geek culture that has suddenly become mainstream rather than being something that was on the background so that gaming culture and the sci-fi culture and you know superheroes and all that this sudden over the last sort of 10 years suddenly became this big mainstream thing yeah, and that's, that's really got to help you you know <laughs> Yeah, hopefully. So, so, and they're not short of sci-fi shows out there at the moment. I mean, you know, Discovery, I think, is great. I interviewed Jeff Russo, who's the Discovery composer. Um, composer he's yeah. a lovely, lovely guy. And uh, one of the things I love about the opening to the Discovery is he took the traditional Star Trek, you know, the sort of dun, 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 that bit. Mm -hmm. He took that, but put it right at the end of the theme rather than at the beginning because uh, Discovery was yeah. a prequel. So, yeah, 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 brilliant. So oh, he flipped yeah. it. So I like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah, I love his music. I think he's, I think he's done a fantastic job. There's a show he did called Counterpart, yes, which I absolutely adore. Amazing, amazing series. I interviewed the cast for that as well. They're lovely guys, and uh, I was so gutted that that didn't make it past two seasons. But there's so much good stuff out there, and with all the new streaming service and things, they're going to be looking for people to write more stuff for their sci-fi. I'm sure. So hopefully well, you get something. Be, yeah, well, fingers crossed, someone's listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, been on for like 50 minutes, so I'm going to let you go and get back to your day and Paul, go and drink some honey and lemon and stuff. <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> Bob, Bob, be lovely talking to you. We'll have to chat again at some point, maybe when Dead Pixel comes out and Absolutely, Bob has yeah. a voice. <laughs> yes, yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> I will hopefully talk to you again soon. Same Thank you, David. Love to chat you. Cheers. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.